Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way. Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And I'm Brandon Polk. And welcome to episode 11 of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. Today, we're going to talk about the ego and how when we think of ego, we typically think of someone who is self-absorbed. We might call them egocentric, and that certainly exists. But when we talk about ego in this episode, we mainly intend it to mean the stories we tell ourselves for understanding reality. If you think of your brain as a computer program, our life experiences have programmed how we see the world. And different people get different programming depending on when and where they were born into it. And this is why, going back a couple episodes back, reputation, it's really difficult to judge anyone, but especially historical figures, because individuals are so complex, history is so complex, life is so complex. As the poet Walt Woman says, I am large, I contain multitudes. And so this programming that tells us how to see the world becomes integral to our identity, and any new information that is introduced literally becomes an attack of the self. And our self is what drives this biological machine that we call our bodies, and everything in our nature exists for self-preservation to keep it ticking and to keep it alive. And while the title of this episode is White Fragility, that's a little unfair because we are all fragile to a certain degree. But in the context of the race discussion, it's important that we frame it this way to understand where white people are coming from in regards to the normative white social construct that we find ourselves in. Uh, and so, Brandon, it might be helpful always, I think, as we're talking about race, to kind of give examples that are illustrative uh, to help people understand it in a way that isn't an attack of their ego in their identity. So what are some examples in the world that uh, might help illustrate the self-preserving nature of the ego? Sure. Uh, this is one of my favorite things. Um, love talking about the ego. Um, that might be surprising to some of you, but I really do. And um, I also am revealing something pretty serious about myself as well when I talk about this first example, which is that I am a huge American Idol fan um, and have been since the beginning. But if you have ever watched the show, maybe some of you listening don't even know what it is, but American Idol is a contest, it's a singing contest, and uh, became really famous, you know, with the host Ryan Seacrest and Simon Cowell, and first iteration was Paula Abdul and whatever the other guy's name is. We call him the dog, whatever his name was. Randy, whatever his name was. And um, if you remember the show, they would have these crazy like auditions, right? And people would come in and they would just say, my grandma or my Aunt Susie or whoever it was told me that I could sing and I have this fantastic voice that I sound like this famous person. And some of those people had a view of self that was very accurate, right? Um, they would go in there, do the audition, literally kill it, sing amazing voices. And then there were these other folks that were so confident in their ability to sing the house down, sing the telephone book, you know, as it is said. And then they would start singing and you recognize that they were nothing short of tone deaf. I know it's sad and nothing short of, um, just that just wasn't their skill. It wasn't their talent and some things you cannot you know, fake, especially something like singing or performing. Um, but what would happen is that the, the judges would give this feedback to that contestant and 
they would come out of the room either shattered, you know, emotionally, their identity's been ripped from them. They're like, you know, and then the stubbornness would come out of them sometimes. Like those judges um, don't know what they're talking about. You know, mind you that all of these judges have worked in music for a long time and they know pretty much what they're talking about. Um, you know, they just say, nope. Nope. Like those judges are dumb. They're crazy. We'll call them names. My grandma's right. I'm not going to give up on this dream. You won't see the last of me. You know, like these like major like assertions that were going on. I mean, talk about the strength of self percept of self perception and the strength of self preservation and the impulse to self preserve um, is that in this situation, these folks could not deal with the pain of, of, of whatever they believed about themselves not being true. And um, there's a genesis to all of that for most people. Um, most likely starts at home, starts in the family. Who's to really say every person's story is different, but it feels like it's traumatic for them to encounter the truth about what their skills actually are. And it doesn't mean that you don't have them. It just means that it's not what you think it is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's one example. But, you know, one that's been in the news here recently has been around uh, Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts. And so... Yeah, actually, before we... You want to you wanna say something yeah, about the other part? Before we Elizabeth Warren, I had some questions about, like, the American Idol thing sure. for, for you specifically. So, like, what should people do... Like when they encounter that, you know, it kind of shakes them and maybe their identity is wrapped up in it because one, you're going on to a contest, you think you're going to win it because you're really good. So you're projecting into the future or imagining crushing it and the judge is loving you and you're going on to different rounds in Hollywood. And so your identity is kind of wrapped up in this success and, and maybe it's been that way for a long time. Maybe you think you can sing and so you start imagining this future. Uh-huh. Uh that involves you because that's your identity your understanding of your identity to have that kind of shake in like then it's like well i'm not gonna be a singer like what am i gonna be so how should like what should we replace once your identity is disrupted like that like how do we integrate that new information in a healthy way yeah well i mean i think that one you don't have the information yet like once you've been deconstructed you know once the truth hits you and it's an unpleasant truth there, it, it, there's a void that's being revealed there and it doesn't just get filled, you know, with something else because you don't know what the other thing is yet. You know, if you've put so much of your time, say, into something like singing and that's not your thing, <laughs> you know, one, who is going to affirm that that's not your thing, right? Because for most people, well, or at least the ones we saw on camera, you know, you get that experience, you know, and someone says, Simon Cal tells you, you're not a really good singer. Some people are like, Simon Cal's an idiot and we don't love him, right? Like you think he's stupid and you go on saying you're going to be that person. Some people will spin their wheels for 30, 40 years, you know, trying to be something they're not good at and um, or trying to do something that they don't have a particular talent in. And um, so that wasn't your question, but here's what I think your question is leading to is that what happens when you do take that to heart? Um, what happens when you get shattered in a sense with the, with the truth and it messes with your identity, something that you've focused on for so long in a particular way with a particular manifestation? Um, we'll stick with the, the same example like singing or stage performance. And what happens when that dream all of a sudden seems like it's not attainable for you? Um, I think there are a few things, you know, that people really need to do um, or to relent to. Um, one is just to consider that 
what you're feeling and the, and, and the information that you've gotten now is true. That's going to be hard, especially if you've been tied to it for so long, for a certain number of years or or whatever your affection is for that belief about about the the inner workings of yourself. That's number one is acknowledgement. And then two, I think, is feedback. Like literally going to people outside of that circle that told you you were great and go to people that don't know you. Um, maybe that means you're doing karaoke, but you're doing it like seriously. Maybe that means you're like um, doing demos or something like that, you know, and actually giving them, giving that stuff, um, you know, to people that you love, people that, you know, love you enough to not lie to you and asking them what they really think um, and what their counsel is. Um, not just yes men or yes people in in your life to keep the lie going. Um, and then I think number three is doing an exploration of what you are good at and um, and what your what your identity really is, who you really are. If we're just talking about talent and giftings, you know, some of that you can probably do on your own just by thinking long and hard about where you've seen success in your life. Some people don't have that, so you need a little bit more help. Um, uh, you may need to go to a coach or, um, or access, you know, uh, someone older who can sit down with you and mentor you and actually pull out some of the things in you that are good and, and that actually do make sense, you know, for how you're supposed to live your life on mission, you know, live your life, um, really producing something that's good for other people as opposed to spinning your wheels, trying to do something that you're not really good at, you know? So acknowledgement, I think is the hardest part of all those three though. And it, I think that you hear the stories too about, you know, these people who are told all the time, like, no, 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 you got an audition, you go to 20 auditions and you're told no, and then you go to the audition and they take you in and put you in a role and then you're just like, kill it and now you're famous. And and so people, I think they see the stories of perseverance uh, through sure. that, through being sure. told no. And so I think that's interesting. I don't want to land here too long because I think it's kind of rabbit trailing, but I think that that's something that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People will... And the difference there is, you know, being being authentic is the key either way. If I'm going after or holding on to, to something because it's so integral to my identity, my sense of worth, my sense of value, and this does align with our conversation today, holding on to something to preserve or to keep myself from the honest truth because it's too painful is not healthy, right? But if I can be authentic and perform. If I can be authentic, be myself. Sometimes you will get rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the opportunity still doesn't come to you, but your but, but your identity is not wrapped in mm-hmm. who 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 affirms you. Your identity is not wrapped in who gives you the accolade. Your identity is instead in something that's generating from the inside of you, not something that's happening on the outside of you. And um, and that's going to become more apparent, I think, as we get through this discussion today. You know that um, when it comes to fragility. In anybody, um, that uh, weakness is a part of being human. Um, we all have the opportunity to connect with truth um, in a way that is healthy and difficult, but healthy. And um, yeah, so we'll and, and then it's 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 up to us to really decide how powerful we're going to be when we hear something that is difficult, but we know it's true. Can't wait to unpack it. That's really great. Um, and you were about to mention something about Elizabeth Warren. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk back. We're going to talk about Elizabeth Warren. Talk about an identity crisis. Poor woman. Okay, so Elizabeth Warren, 
senator from Massachusetts, you know, look her up. Okay, she's done this really odd thing. Okay, her and President Trump have been in this war for a really long time now, but whether or not, you know, she is actually um, of Native American heritage, um, you know, Trump, you know, this is not an endorsement of Trump at all, by the way. So anybody listening, you know, just say we're not endorsing Trump because he's obviously been really like ratchet in this whole thing. And this conversation with her, he's called her names like Pocahontas. And he even made this like assertion, you know, that, that he would give like a million dollars to a charity if she could confirm that she was of Native American heritage in some level. Right. But the entire thing of, with this, and this is why it's been a big deal in the news this last week is because um, one would say that that Elizabeth Warren has um, taken her own sense of of who she is, says that she's connected as an indigenous or, or as or as a person with a heritage that's connected to to the indigenous of this country, and perhaps has built some of her career on that. Um, so. What she did this last week is she got the results from her DNA testing that she engaged in to attempt to prove the president wrong. Okay. Comes back that she is one twenty-sixth indigenous Native American, some kind mm-hmm. of, of that. She goes, they release it to the media and says, Trump was wrong. I've been right the whole time. Okay. Okay. And then this week, I mean, this is just crazy. So Trump, of course, is like, I'm not giving a million dollars to a charity. He goes, I'll, I'll test her, you know, first before I do that, you know? And I'm like, okay, that's crazy too. Okay. So she goes out thinking that that was going to be the thing to affirm her position. She's up going for an election, you know, in November in just a few weeks here. And all of a sudden she releases this whole thing and the Cherokee Nation comes out against her. Um, or against the results and says, just because, honey boo boo, you are 126th or whatever Native American does not mean that you can claim any of our history. You can claim any of our story. It doesn't mean anything. It hasn't been your experience. You haven't lived in the context of this. Now, why does this play into our conversation on ego and fragility? Um, Elizabeth Warren has held on to this narrative for a very long time. And... Um, Trump has had come against her saying, stop calling yourself that. That is not true. You were, and, and I think that basically what he's getting at is that you are writing um, some story um, for political gain or personal gain or emotional gain for affirmation that somehow you're relevant if you're connected to this history of brown people. And then it maybe in her mind, I don't know her, but maybe in her mind, she's thinking, um, you know, I'm going to have more of a relevant voice for children and families that are minority because I am also part minority, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, given this is not a slight against against her, um, I know people that work with her and say she's great. Um, I know people that see her on television and they hate her dramatically. So it's not a character assessment I'm making, but I am saying this is really interesting that that in all of her attempts to try and prove herself right to Trump, that she ended up actually the credible authority was the Cherokee Nation who had actually disavowed this whole notion that somehow just because you got your DNA test done that you're familiar with the experience of what it means to be indigenous. So anyway, yeah. just something to consider. I wonder I, yeah. I wonder what's going on with her right now. I've, I've, I've oftentimes, well, at least 
over this last week have wondered what it would have been like to be a person on her communications team, um, you know, a, a person that was trying to triage this whole problem because I, I bet you she's kind of fragile right now because she's going into an election and she's got this weight, this baggage of um, of how she sees herself, how she has seen herself versus how the world actually sees her now. Yeah, they can leave someone a little shook. And I, I can kind of relate in a way because – you know, is it is it something where she was trying to be manipulative and she was trying to use it for personal gain? I think that it was part of her narrative, but was it diabolical? Was it deceitful? Well, I don't know. I, you know, we don't know. I don't know. And it could be that she was told, you know, from a very young age, and she just like, yeah, there's Native American heritage in us. Like, I remember my grandma talked about that. I'm like, well, how much actually is there? And so, uh, when you start to attach your identity and that that's your history, like for me. My background is I have German. Like my my last name Bauer is German, and um, my dad and both of his parents German. And it wasn't that very far removed that uh, his family immigrated here from Germany. And so I've just always kind of attached. If I was going to attach to any kind of heritage, I always naturally gravitated toward German heritage. And so like uh, Wiener Schnitzels and like sausage and like and that even that kind of food I've appreciated it. And, uh, Oktoberfest and so there's like I've always wanted to go to Germany and then we did like our family did a DNA test uh, last like year just doing one of those like family heritage things and uh, got back that I'm like actually more like Irish and English mm-hmm. than I actually am German and I was like dadgummit like so <laughs> what is my you know I'm just a white guy now. who I'm am just, I like, yeah who am I who am I I have the the German last name and that's kind of all I'm hanging on to so I can like I can see how that would be problematic for for her. This is especially something mm-hmm. she's believed and known from a very young age. It doesn't have to be manipulative, like, yeah. To to get anything, it can just be her complete understanding of it. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't feel sorry for her at all, having to go through this and and, and everything. So. I don't. I mean, they played anyway. She played right into it. So we'll see. I mean, I anyway. That's another story. Yeah, for another time. We're we're, we're still talking about fragility, fragility, and, yes, and the and the, the fragility of the ego. <laughs> yes. Um, and so there was, in talking uh, with you and coming up with like how we what we wanted to discuss today, thinking through some things where I was recently kind of had my worldview um, offended. I, I don't even know. I I took offense to something that someone was saying. So I'm taking this race literacy class um, through this nonprofit here in DC. Uh, call and um and he brought brought in a guest speaker uh it's a multi-week class and we're in the middle of it he brought in this guest speaker who's native american um and who really unpacked this great well i don't want to say great but it was really fascinating to see him unpack this history of the church all the way back to constantine and where we kind of find ourselves today and how um Christianity has been woven into governments ever since then and how, you know, Jesus during his ministry, that was never the case. He was never, you know, everything he talked about, he's like not bringing in a government. Right. Um, And so how we brought this even to modern day founding of America, uh, he wove that in and it was great, great history lesson there and gave me a lot to wrestle with. But one thing he said near the end was he compared Abraham Lincoln to Adolf Hitler and said he was uh, genocidal diabolical white supremacist and i was so offended by that that i legitimately and i'm a pretty open-minded person not easily take offense to things and i i wanted to get up and walk out just because i thought that was so absurd and it was something that um and and i can give you some context he 
he said that Abraham Lincoln was these things, a white supremacist, because of some things he said about if he could preserve the Union and not free slave, he would do that. And some examples of some things that I think we legitimately have to grapple with in Lincoln's past, where he was responsible for displacing Indians, Native American tribes, and sending them west. And, and then he also was responsible for some lynchings of some, some Indians. So I think that there were some things there legitimately that, to wrestle with. But Abraham Lincoln, uh, as a historical figure, is one of my favorite. And he's there's uh, the Lincoln Cottage here in D.C. that I've visited and been one of my favorite things since I've been here. Out of all the things that I've done in D.C., that's been one of my favorite learning about Lincoln. I think he was a great politician, uh, really introspective person, um, wise. And so there's this person that I've kind of revered um, and many others. Like That's not abnormal. Like uh, He's a lot of people's favorites. Um, and now I'm taking information. This person is saying something about Lincoln. And now I'm super offended by it to the point where I was like, man, I'm going to walk out like this is so nuts. Um, and over this last week, I've kind of wrestled with it. Like, why was I so offended? Like, what was it that caused me such offense? And there are a couple of things going on there. One is um, just new information and that conflicts with my worldview. Um, but also, I think that I just tend to be uh, get upset anytime that you name call or put an identity on someone like i don't know that we can say that abraham lincoln was a white supremacist i think he existed in a time that was obviously perpetuating a white doctrine but i don't know that we can say that he was like uh you know like destiny manifest destiny uh but i don't know that we can say that he was a white supremacist um and so like wrestling with those things was there very very difficult for me to do this week yeah Sorry. Give it to me, Brandon. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I like agree with most of what you're saying. I think that I, I, I would not be one to call Abraham Lincoln a white supremacist. Uh, we talked about this before in our in our, in our pre-talk here around, uh, you know, the things we don't know. Um, I would hear some, some of those statements and, and just hear them as like, you know, if I could preserve the union without disbanding slavery, you know, then that's something that I would do for the, you know, for maybe the, the preservation of life or something like that, you know, like if, if that were something that we couldn't um, deal with or something that we could avoid, then I would for this. I see that, you know, it, it could be said more, more more soft, you know, as opposed to it being sort of like, oh, Lincoln is a white supremacist of some kind and wants to preserve the institutions of slavery, you know, during the context of the Civil War, which obviously he was integral in not keeping them the way that they were, um, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation and the like. But I think this is, is brings up an entirely um, interesting um, concept for me, which I think goes into why you may have been offended in a sense, um, or at least triggered some offense, is, the, is, is really needing to define supremacy. And we hear the word white supremacy, words white supremacy, and we think David Duke, we think, um, uh, we, we do think um, about Hitler, you know, we think about these like, these really, really extreme examples, you know, of white supremacy. Let's just say that, so that, let me not call it supremacy, and let's actually just call it something more latent than that, you know, um, something more sub subconscious, you know, um, uh, a subconscious belief that 
whiteness is better or that whiteness or that being white gives you more opportunity um, or a denial. It could also be a, a, a denial that you don't think that black has or that black people have less opportunity than you. Now, can we, can I also call that somehow supremacist thought, you know? I don't know. I think it's this is a really tough thing because I like I don't think that white supremacy is so extreme. I think the white supremacy is 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 something that is a little bit more soft and unconscious, and I think that more people have it um, than what they want to admit, and um, more white people have it than what they want to admit, or or, or more than what they are like aware of because we don't have strong definitions for these things. We don't have accurate definitions because they're so salacious. To call someone a white supremacist is to call them a name. And you shut down the conversation. We should just instead talk about supremacy. What is supremacy? What is supremacist thought? What is supremacist ideology? Um, what is the theory behind supremacy? Um, and how do you recognize it? And I think that uh, how do you recognize it within yourself? Um, a, uh, a woman clutching her purse um, and walking to the other side of a street when a black man is walking on the same side of the street as her initially. There is something supremacist in that thought, in that ideology, um, in the body, um, in, in, the, um, in the generational trauma, in a sense, or generational thought or whatever it is, whatever you believe, that I need to change sides of the street and clutch my purse because this, see, there's something about that that thinks you're, you know, that, that gives you power to do that. And that could be supremacist thought. I don't know. Just something I'm using around right now. But I think that's offensive to consider that, oh, wait a minute. Is it me? If Lincoln was, am I? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's hard. And it's, that's true. That's And I can definitely wrap my brain around that more. And I think that if we're talking about language, there is misunderstandings of language. Some people use this word to mean one thing, and I take it to mean something completely different. Like you mentioned the David Dukes. Who knows what his use of it was when he called Abraham Lincoln a white supremacist? Was it kind of to say something shocking? Um, right. And and so I think that that brings up. I think we could do a complete deep dive into language because if huh. we're talking about like our realities and our egos and how they're shaped by our experiences and growing up, and if you think about it like a computer program, then there is conflict and tension in understanding even the language that we use. And so we can get into that another time, but. Yeah. I think it's important to get into how we kind of manage the offense. So when our egos are offended, how do we manage that? And for for me, like when he was talking about Abraham Lincoln, there were some things where I was like, yeah, I think that needs more examination. Like, yes, I think you, you're onto something there. Uh, and it kind of agitates me and it kind of stirs my worldview a little bit, my identity, and now causes me to, to deposit something into my into my perspective that wasn't there before and I feel like maybe it becomes a little more integral. Uh, and then some of the things that he was saying about Lincoln, I'm just like, eh, I'm not really there, uh, but maybe maybe if him and I got into a discussion like in 101 and we were unpacking some things together, I could maybe come around to, to his perspective a little bit more. Uh, but from what he was saying from that you know short hour and a half long presentation and where his part on Lincoln was just a, a fraction of it, uh, I wasn't able to get there. But in taking and integrating different perspectives, like what's a way that we can manage offense healthily? Uh, yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that one, to be offended is literally the person that it's hurting is just you. Mm -hmm. That's number one. I mean, depending on the temperature of the 
of the offense. Um, you know, offense, you know, leads us to hate and bitterness and, you know, judgment and all these things, you know, and the only person that's carrying that, typically speaking, is the person that is offended, right? And so um, I think there's a character question and a, a, a value of self-care around how we choose to carry things that are difficult for us to hear or um, uh, someone thinks something different or says something different that is different uh, for, for us or, or difficult for us to contend with. Um, because it's difficult, oftentimes we graduate to offense very quickly, you know, and say that that person's obviously wrong, they're whatever, we'll call them a name and say they're heretical or they're whatever, the, the, the list of names go on, as, um, as opposed to, I think, number two in this, which is um, viewpoint diversity, you know, um, being able to be in the same room and to be in relationship with people that think sometimes extraordinarily different than you are because there is an inherent value that's embedded into the character of at least one of those people that everyone in the room is valuable that everyone has is made you know um in what i call the imago day which is the image of god and so and really do um uh really deserve um some honoring in terms of human dignity and the, the freedom to be different and that you also can be different. And because someone is saying something that you do not like, does not mean that you cannot have your own opinion. Um, and then uh, to communicate, um, you know, with equity, uh, what your opinion is. Um, also then to listen and not to defend your opinion when someone is saying something different. Um, and I think that in order to, to, to get there, you know, there is this thing that we've been talking about, which is being integral um, to have an integrality, you know, to our lives, which basically means that I can pull from different experiences of my own life, um, to be open to the experiences and what pe and uh, that, that other people have had and what, um, and what people have learned from their own experiences, right? So I can have, um, uh, you know, some measure of, of patience and, and grace and curiosity and wonder about how people, um, not only believe what they believe, but how they have become who they are. And that outweighs um, when I'm integral. It outweighs any desire to self-preserve, to defend myself, to defend my opinion, um, to defend my position. Um, it's more important to be curious about the other person um, while still holding fast to what I believe are my own principles. You know, um, I call it engaging without compromising, mm -hmm. you know, um, but it takes a mature person who is not fighting for their own value, who's not fighting to self-preserve um, to even begin to graduate to the place of integrality. So I don't know. Yeah. And these are big words, Inter integrality, integral. Um, you might call it self-love, I guess. I don't know. Loving yourself because you said a, a place of maturity where you don't compromise who you are. Um, and I think that that's it. You have to always be wrestling with kind of who you are. And um, when you're introducing new information, where does that not fit? Where is that contrary to, to your understanding and experience? Because when someone tells you their experience, maybe it is contradictory. Maybe their worldview or perspective is the one that needs to kind of shift based on your own experience. And that's where you mentioned sharing uh, and listening and, and engaging in a conversation with, with both people. And I think that that's just kind of where you get into some white guilt. So on the other end of white fragility, 
Um, you know, you can shift, you can be defensive, and we've talked about this before, where you can also swing to the other extreme and have white guilt, and you are the perpetuator and of of trauma and you know everything that this victim, you know, black people, the trauma they've experienced is true, um, but that that is also incorrect. So to swing wildly between those two extremes is unhealthy, and to be integral in community with someone is to take information and deposit it into yeah definitely i mean the terms white or the term white fragility you know i think that what 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 we're getting at there you know in the context of the ego is that there is a belief corporately or collectively call it collective ego within the context of the majority that um, that if there's an assertion, let's just say, for example, white privilege, like we talked about here, or generational trauma, things that are difficult, you know, for white people to understand because of their own experience, that there's an introduction of information that is difficult, that is hard, that is challenging. Um, the white privilege um, argument, as we talked about before, is that from the white experience, it goes, how can you tell me that everything that I have, I didn't earn? right which is not what's being said that is a, that is the evidence of fragility <laughs> it's the evidence of offense to 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 hear someone put on the table an argument that white privilege exists this is the definition of it and then the responsiveness to that is being defensive saying oh what you're telling me is that i'm not valuable what you're telling me is that everything that i have done isn't actually something that i've done it's something you've done right and no one's saying that Right. But the fragility of of the ego, right, is self-preserving the worldview that you have and not only the worldview, but the collective view of who you are right now as white people. And now take it down another step. Now there's also the view of self. Now it's because you don't have to. Now, typically speaking, white people don't think in in the context of 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 a collective. That's something that's been that that's, that's, that's recently developing because of all the things that are in the news and things like that. Black and brown people have been thinking as a collective and feeling things as a collective for a long time because collectively <laughs> we were taken, collectively we were abused, and collectively we were in chains. And the diaspora of that, um, uh, you know, is a shared experience in mourning and lamenting and celebration and joy in, um, and in the our own fragility is in um, having believed that we're not worth something that we're not valuable that black isn't beautiful and then all of this connection together has caused us to to begin to rise over the last 60 years to, to a place of where we're saying no black is beautiful and black demands respect and black demands human dignity and equity and equality of opportunity that is causing the shared collective ego of white america to break down and go oh no 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 there isn't room for both of us here either at least you can't have my stuff and you can't have my position you can't tell me that because my position is what it is and you can't get to where i'm at because you don't work hard enough see now there are all these other things that are coming out of it right but all of that meant it's all manifestation it's all manifesting out of the place of white fragility quote unquote is what we're calling it i'm just calling it like you know um you, you know you you got your feelings hurt yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know yeah 
and there is you bring up the the collectedness of the you know the black community and there there's a sweetness in that that i haven't experienced in the white community where you feel like you have this heritage or this identity and it goes back to me like hanging on to like german heritage where there's a sweetness like i've always been attracted to kind of the the latin culture and community and very family oriented and in the black community too very family oriented big families big family gatherings uh rarely we had some like family reunions growing up but like not i wasn't i'm not super close with cousins right to the point where they're like almost like brothers and sisters and and maybe that's a, a race thing maybe not i know that's white families who are super connected and, and like that but wasn't my experience but there is a sweetness in in that that i think white people haven't had to experience because they haven't had their worldview tested they haven't had their worldview um I guess introduce you know conf conflicting things because they've been in in the uh, the normative culture the yep. dominant culture yep. and so I think that the more that we can stop being f fragile and we can integrate different perspectives and worldviews and share in that and have a shared connectedness one that's not based on skin color and ideas like that then how much sweeter will that be for for everybody you know mm -hmm. uh, because you grow a lot and there's a lot of growth and you learn a lot about who you are when your worldview is tested and then there's nothing wrong with that yeah yeah well it's gonna be hard because we got a whole lot of things coming up now like you know there's population growth in the hispanic culture for sure that's gonna knock out you know white people as the majority you know it's gonna bring it's it's already happening right so it's not even just black anymore right now we're yeah. talking about brown cultures yeah. um you know that are moving into places of position and um are, are, are recognizing that there's been an a an oppression of sorts that's kept them from accessing, you know, certain certain types of privileges or positions, and um, it is causing some um, some manifestation of that fragility. And and I, I think we're we're going to talk about now how to maybe some resources to kind of look at that yeah. and how you can manage that. But here again, number one, I think is acknowledgement and um, being open and not um, feeling as though someone is attacking you because we're bringing these things to the forefront. We're looking at the data and also data with experience. Data with 400 years of shared experience is powerful, mm -hmm. right? And should not be overlooked. We can't afford to overlook it as a people, collectively. Uh, yeah, and that's a good point. And so, as Brandon mentioned, we we're kind of coming up on time, but we do want to leave you with a couple calls to action uh, and some resources too. So uh, one thing that, I think is helpful is talking about mindfulness or prayer or meditation. And I think that those are vehicles to being more integral. So like the Bible talks about, I think Jesus says prayer without ceasing. And I don't think he's talking about literally getting on your knees and like constantly uttering words, but I think he was talking about being in a constant connection with yourself. And if you want to call it the universe or God, uh, and kind of just a reminder of who you are, a constant reminder of who you are and, uh, probably an open-minded posture and not one that is defensive, defensive and rooted in you know something that you might like attribute your identity to career or uh, you know your skin color or whatever your heritage is. Uh, that's kind of how I take it to being in a constant kind of meditation on that uh, to bring yourself out of your own shadow that you don't even know is there and kind of bring it into the light. Uh, and then some resources uh, that were helpful to me and I'm serious. I bring this up legitimately is. Uh, the movie Straight Outta Compton. Uh, there were some things when you talk about bringing in new information that conflicts with your worldview. 
I've, I mentioned before that where I grew up was very diverse. People might be surprised to learn that North Texas is very diverse. Uh, it's a conservative state, but in terms of like being multicultural uh, and experiencing different like worldviews and perspectives, very diverse. Um, but one thing that always like was hard for me were like you know thug lives or uh, you talk about like and that's just a word like that I'm using kind of as a descriptor. And so I remember the conversations around the time that like rap in the 90s and NWA was saying, uh, I don't know, we haven't talked about using curse words here, but F the police, you know? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I remember those conversations existing in the 90s and like, how much is this uh, culture perpetuating that that culture or or this music perpetuating that culture? Uh, And so that was one thing that I grappled with. But when I watched the movie Straight Outta Compton, I learned that that was not perpetuating a culture it was just documenting what actually is right it was mm-hmm. what he i think it was ice cube who said this is our cnn mm-hmm. you know uh we're just uh revealing truth about where we are uh so i think that that could be hugely helpful yeah um so a couple of the resources kind of just rapid fire right now um if you haven't heard of these books the new jim crow by michelle alexander uh, is a really good read it's about the criminal justice system um, Between the World and Me, it's a book by Tanasi Coates, which is written, it's a book written in narrative form as a letter to his son about what it means to be a black man um, from his perspective, um, living in America, sort of living in this Western world. Um, a couple other ones, um, uh, one that I'm really fond of that just came to my mind is... Um, uh, is a play. It's a choreo poem. You order. It's by Entozake Shange. Um, I won't spell that on the air, but the name of the uh, uh, play or the choreo poem is also long. It's called Four Color Girls Who Had Committed Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. And uh, Teller Perry also did an adaptation of that in film form called Colored Girls. And I would uh, suggest you guys read that as well. It's definitely um, that movie, that adaptation is actually set in modern times. It's very artistic um, and speaks more to the experience of black and brown women. And um, there's also a new movie out called The Hate You Give. Um, I have not seen it yet, so it's not an endorsement of the movie, but um, I, but friends that have seen it um, have said that it's very moving. And um, this movie is about um, a, uh, a girl, um, a brown girl, living in um, a mostly black neighborhood, but going to a white prep school. And her best friend is killed um, at the hands of a police officer. And it goes through um, sort of her walking through that grief and the experiences that she's having, you know, yeah. sort of sort of building the bridge, but, but maybe building the bridge between both those cultures. I'm not really sure yet. So, um, but I'm going to go see it soon and yeah. then we'll report back. Yeah. But yeah. Let me know when you go see it and I want to tag along. There you go. Um, and a couple of things too. We always want these podcasts to be the start of a conversation. We don't want it to be the end all of a conversation. So... You know, they're 30 minute, 40 minute long conversations where we just briefly get into a topic and we want you to explore more. And so that's why we give you the resources. But then also we want to provide an outlet for you to discuss more because certainly you have your own thoughts as you're listening to this. Uh, and so we're trying to build out uh, kind of a, a place where that can occur, whether it's on Facebook, on our Facebook page, uh, or maybe a new form that's kind of anonymous because some people have reached out to me like, I want to have these conversations, but it, there's so much vitriol around it that I don't know if I can enter into it. Um, 
online in an online forum. So we're trying to cover out that space. We would love to hear your thoughts uh, as we build that out, kind of where you might participate in that. Uh, our website, Wony Media, W-O-N-Y Media.com. And we have our email on there, info at Wony Media. Uh, and feel free to shoot us an email with maybe some thoughts and maybe we could turn that into future episodes. Uh, but definitely want to uh, to engage more in conversation and keep that going because, as again, this is the, the start of a conversation. This isn't necessarily a 40-minute be-all. Uh, so we want to leave you with that, and thank you for tuning in this time. Thanks. Yeah, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, and then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then, of course, if you think you had know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.